You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Hey, everyone. If you like this podcast, you should check out the full finance journey at realvision.com slash rvpod to get the full view of what Real Vision is all about. A video on-demand platform you can watch anywhere. Our members get daily videos and analysis, plus access to more than 3,000 videos for beginners and experienced investors alike, and live events online. You'll join the most thoughtful community in finance. More than 300,000 people who trust Real Vision to be the anchor to truth in the financial world. To get started, visit realvision.com slash rvpod and use the promo code PODCAST10 to get 10% off our essential membership for your first year. Enjoy the show. Good afternoon, folks, and welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. I'm Andreas Steno, and uh, quite tellingly, I'm sending live amidst a very severe thunderstorm here in Copenhagen, Denmark today. It's been another interesting day in the uh, world of macro, uh, not least as we've uh, we've had an official sovereign debt default, basically. Um, it is today the 27th of June, and I am very happy to be joined by an old friend of the show, Peter Bukwa, the CIO of Bleakly Advisory Group. How are you today, Peter? Good, Andreas. Thanks for uh, having me on again. Of course. Um, basically, few are better at assessing bond markets than you, Peter. Um, Russia uh, defaulted on a few international debt obligations today. Uh, in my opinion, probably more of a technical default than anything else. But um, please unpack this situation a bit for our audience. Uh, should we care about this debt default of Russia? I agree that it's technical in that it was not by their choice. It was, of course, forced upon them. Uh, certainly, they have the capability of of, of paying back uh, these bonds, uh, but were not allowed to. Uh, if anything, it's the bondholders that are getting screwed. Uh, Russia is saying, well, we have the money, and if you don't want our money, then we'll just keep our money. So I... I, I look at this as, as a very idiosyncratic situation. I would not extrapolate this to broader uh, emerging markets or, or country uh, ability to pay. And as you said, it's it's more technical than, than anything else. Yeah, I, t- I tend to agree. Uh, it's been an ongoing debate for a couple of weeks in a row now, uh, whether the Russian economy is, is doing better or worse than before the invasion of uh, Ukraine. And one of the things that have been debated quite a lot is the level of the Russian ruble because it looks really strong on charts uh, if you chart it against the US dollar, for example. Um, do you consider the strength of the Russian ruble on the charts as a sign of strength in the Russian economy? I think it just reflects the the, the flows. Uh, the, the oil money that continues to come in uh, the huge uh, current account surplus that they have uh, as as their exports obviously go up pretty strongly uh, and their imports have essentially collapsed. I mean, the economy itself is is in a really tough situation. Uh, we don't hear about the thousands and thousands, the tens of thousands, the hundreds of thousands of people that have lost their jobs with a lot of Western companies 
closing down. Now, some will reopen under a sort of a, a, a Russian uh, uh, umbrella, but plenty have lost their jobs. They are losing access to uh, a lot of technology, whether it's technology at the, at the oil pump from Halliburton or Schlumberger or Western technology in a variety of other areas. So they're hurting. But again, it's all about the flows that they're benefiting from and whether that's also uh, only accepting rubles for payment for oil uh, or having capital controls within their country, all adding up to the strength. But again, it's certainly not reflective of a robust Russian economy. It just reflects the still um, heavy uh, revenue that's piling in specifically with, with energy at these very high uh, prices and their ability to still sell, even though the customer mix is obviously different. Yeah. But Peter, who are the winners and losers of this current situation with uh, with Russia? Uh, I know we have a chart that we can bring up um, on the export destinations of uh, Russian exports. Um, we have Germany, Italy, um, big countries within the Eurozone high on that list. So who would you claim to be the winners and losers of the current situation? Well, Putin is clearly a winner because he's still able to finance his military machine through the exports of, of oil and gas in particular, uh, obviously agriculture as well. But for purposes of this conversation, dollar wise, it's, it's going to be predominantly oil and gas. So he's able to continue on as is in terms of revenue. Uh, I wouldn't say the Russian people because it's not like he's using that money to filter down to the Russian people. The Russian people instead, uh, as, we, as we mentioned, dealing with a very difficult economy. Now, from an inflation standpoint, the strength of the ruble is helping to mitigate uh, the, their, their, their jump in the cost of living. Uh, but we're at a point where even the Bank of Russia is now worried about the ruble being too strong, and they're doing what they can to actually weaken it. Now, other countries that are able to buy Russian barrels at a discount, like India, like China, They're also a beneficiary. Uh, I'm not sure what the exact dollar amount is right now, but I know it's a $15 to $20 discount that these countries were able to procure uh, Russian barrels with. We know who's hurting, of course, is, is European countries that are now getting clipped by the uh, reduction in gas deliveries, where, where Putin's sort of playing a game with them. Uh, that's not helping them. Uh, and, and we'll see to, to what extent this gain of the part of Putin uh, actually starts to hurt him because he's losing more customers. And like I said earlier, he's losing the technology to continue on producing at the rate at which he was. And they're, or they're not producing as much because I mean, they're, 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 their wells are, are not as productive as they once were. And over time, that will hurt them. But at least for now he's able to get away with it. Speaking of commodities, uh, I actually think that we've seen some interesting price actions in um, in many commodity markets over the past uh, two, three weeks here. Um, we've seen a retracement in a few of the very important industrial metals. We've also seen a, a material uh, retracement lower in the price of natural gas in the US, for example. So what do you make of this recent repricing lower in commodity markets? I mean, it's clearly in response to global growth concerns with the R word, recession word, uh, on, on 
everybody's mind and what that potentially is going to do to the demand side of the supply demand uh, curve with respect to commodities. It's also in the context of a very sharp run-up that we saw where you know everyone was was bullish and we got certainly offsides in terms of that sentiment. So the question is is to what extent do we get demand destruction going into this downturn? How elastic or inelastic is the demand for for commodities and of course we can break it down amongst the groups. The demand for food is not necessarily going to alter. Uh, but if you look within the commodity space, if you're going to play it as an investor, and, and we had, we did here, but we had sold our fertilizers, but demand destruction for fertilizers has certainly taken place. And we've gotten some, some, some better uh, delivery yields out of Brazil and Argentina. But if farmers are going to plant less fertilizer this summer, it means that maybe the harvest come October may not be that as robust. Uh, industrial metals, which are probably the most cyclical and the most elastic of the commodity space, well, that that's certainly gotten her particularly copper. I think energy is certainly much more inelastic, uh, that people still have to get into their cars to drive to work and, and, and see friends, and you still need to heat your house and cool it during the summer. Uh, so that will likely remain more sticky in terms of the demand side. But from a market perspective, like I said, it got overheated. Now everyone's talking recession. So what do you do? You sell uh, economically sensitive things, and certain commodities certainly fit that bill. Uh, if if you listen to Jay Powell uh, at the latest um, Federal Reserve meeting, it almost sounded as if he started targeting the price at the pump as the main inflation target for the Federal Reserve, at least indirectly via the channel of inflation expectations. Do you think it will matter for the Federal Reserve outlook if we get a further slide in commodity prices? I think it will matter in where the Fed funds rate ends up. And we've certainly seen that repricing in the Fed funds futures, where at the peak, we were pricing in a 4% sort of called terminal rate which people like to use that term, in the middle of next year. And now we're just under, we're probably closer to 3.3, 3.4, which actually is where the the, the Fed thinks that they can take the Fed funds rate this year alone. Uh, So I do think that, and and just as we've seen with with the mentality of, of, of the Fed, is that they obviously went extreme on one end. They seem very intent on going extreme the other end. So they're going to raise... 75 in July. So this decline in the commodity prices to your actual question will help determine whether they go 50 or 75 in September. But I think that they've lost so much credibility in how they played this inflation game, where they, of course, had their chips all in on transitory, that they're going to take the the opinion of they're more focused on getting the Fed funds rate to a certain level which then they can take a step back and, 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 and play it by ear from there. And if the inflation numbers start to come in, well, good, they feel like they did their job. If, if the inflation numbers come in rather shortly and we go into a deep recession, well, at least they then have rates to cut. And I think around 3% it is that number. And granted, the dot plot got to 3.4 uh, in, in their last meeting, but I think their intent on doing 75 in July, which will get you to about two and a half, 
which is where the Fed funds rate topped out in the fourth quarter of 2018. And I think they'll probably go 50 in September, depending on the data, which would get them to that 3%. And then from there, it's it's completely play up by ear. But I think the Fed's credibility in their eyes will be lost if they start having buckling of the knees just because oil prices went from 120 to 100. You know, that's not enough for them to to pivot because they know if they, they lose any credibility that they're trying to regain, well, then the markets are going to play around with them. And maybe you see a, a, a big sharpen fall in the dollar and a spike in commodity prices. And then they look like complete idiots. So I, I think, again, the, the a level of Fed funds rate, while they say we, we're going to do what we can to bring down inflation, I think they're very focused on getting to three because that they believe will give them flexibility to go either way from there. And one last point on this, I wouldn't be surprised if they ended at two and a half, if history is any guide, because we know the last 40 years, each hiking cycle ended below the, the, the previous hiking peak. We're going to take a quick break and be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Yeah, that's a very fair point. Uh, I've also noted how the correlation between the gasoline price and then the euro dollar futures in the first quarter of 2023 uh, are very correlated uh, and it goes right to your point that uh, for the terminal rate for the ultimate expectation for the federal funds um, rate level um, we should probably watch the development in the, in the commodity space uh, but not for the very near-term outlook i know peter that uh, you want to discuss another central bank also um, this uh, afternoon uh, because you have a great point um, in terms of what's going on in japan uh, a lot of people are watching the development in the 10-year space and the yield curve. But there is actually maybe an even more interesting development going on further out the curve in Japan. Uh, we, we can bring a chart up on the development in the 40-year point on the yield curve. Please unpack your thinking on Bank of Japan and why this 40-year point is so important to watch. So as you mentioned, we know that the, the Fed, uh, the VOJ has essentially fixed the yield curve out to 10 years with that 10-year trading within a band of minus 25 basis points, plus 25, and we keep bumping up against the upper end of that. The reason why I like to look at the 40-year is because it's the furthest away from BOJ manipulation of not just 25 basis points at the 10-year, but a negative 10 basis points on the deposit or called overnight rate. So going up 40 years, it's, it's the most market-driven part of the GGB yield curve. Therefore, if you want to look for signals, if there's any signaling left in the, in the JGB market, uh, you know, there's, 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 some, there's some there. The 40 years is where to go. And overnight, it got, the yield got close to 140, which is a fresh six-and-a-half-year high. So it's, when I see that, it just tells me that it's getting tougher and tougher for the BOJ to be sitting on that that 10-year beach ball underwater and that it's just inevitable that that, that ball is going to is going to s- s- spur higher now 
the BOJ, I think, will widen that band. I have no idea when, but I think they'll have no choice. But they're going to do it what most likely will be in thin increments of maybe 10 basis points just to start as a way to cap the, 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 the weakness in the yen. Because just from a signaling standpoint, if they went from 25 to 35, economically, it really wouldn't matter that much. It's 10 basis points. Signaling, though, it could lead to uh, a rally in the yen, which I think at some point they're going to want. Uh, because at the same time as Kuroda is, is sitting on yields because he wants to generate his 2% inflation sustainably, and he's already done that for two straight months, uh, I think that there's a lot of pressure within the, the Ministry of Finance that they don't want any more weakness in the end. Uh, now, yeah. maybe they don't get it if oil prices stop going up, because over the past couple of years, there has been some relationship FX-wise uh, with the yen and energy prices, because we know they import so much energy. So you can draw a chart up until the past month that crude oil and the yen have pretty much moved in lockstep. It's broken down a bit of late with oil prices pulling back and the yen really not uh, at around 135. But uh, I would really, again, look at that 40-year yield every day as the real part of the yield curve that is sort of speaking out with its own voice and not being fully manipulated by the BOJ. And in that regards, we should remember that I think there are two countries that are extremely reliant on foreign energy sources, uh, one being Germany, the second being Japan. And that could be the reason why we have this correlation between the oil price and uh, the dollar-yen FX cross. Uh, we talked initially about the market slowly but surely reacting to the growth scare that is potentially upcoming. Uh, and today we got news out of the US uh, related to the durable goods orders. Um, of course, one of the gauges that uh, one could look for um, uh, when, when assessing the outlook for the US economy. What do you make of the positive surprise on the headline for the durable goods orders? So yes, it, it came up, up seven tenths the headline. I think a tenth was expected. And also the uh, the core durable goods, what are they called? The, the, uh, you know, Xing out, um, it's basically non-defense capital goods, X aircraft. Mm -hmm. That also slightly beat. Also, the prior month was revised upward. So, in in response, the Atlanta Fed actually raised their uh, second quarter GDP estimate by three tenths from zero to plus three tenths. But these numbers are reported in nominal terms. So, even with the upside surprise, in real terms, and yes, the Atlanta Fed is in real terms, but they don't necessarily quickly adjust on the inflation side as quickly as they do on the nominal side. So, if you look at May. In the May PPI number, I'm just doing a back of the envelope. This is nothing scientific here. May goods prices in PPI, putting aside services, was up 1.4% month over month. Headline durable goods orders were up seven tenths. So you can argue that, yes, in nominal terms, durable goods orders went up, but in real terms, they're still falling. And I think when you, when you break down the GDP equation, and trying to figure out, are we in a recession? Are we about to go into recession? Obviously, the biggest chunk is consumer spending. And on in real terms, we can argue that that is on the cusp of, of breaking down. And then you have uh, gross private investment, which some of that is commercial real estate, residential real estate, but the other component is capital spending. And 
or are we on the cusp of a downturn in real terms in capital spending? Now, durable goods orders, keep in mind, does not include software spending. Software spending is still going to remain pretty, pretty healthy, but mostly bigger companies. And when you think about investment, investment comes from savings, or theoretically it does. It comes from company cash flow. And if we're going into a growth slowdown and companies have less cash flow, well, then just by default, they're going to be investing less in their business because there's less cash to go around. So that is another component, which is potentially going to reflect a downturn in the economy. And then you have trade, which the global economy is slowing down. So in terms of trade is going to slow. And then you have government spending, which is typically a plus sign. But you know this is sort of how you should break down the debate about whether we're going into recession or not. So that's why the durable goods numbers, I think, was important about how companies are going to respond from here. Now, Google, Microsoft, the big companies, you know, they'll maintain a certain level of CapEx because, you know, they have the cash flows to do it. But uh, not everyone does in the large company space and certainly not for the small and middle-sized uh, companies uh, in an economic slowdown. In relation to this uh, debate on whether we are about to enter a recession or not, I, I, I wanted to play a clip for you um, from an interview that aired earlier today on the Real Vision platform between a uh, discussion between Francis Gannon and Mackie Lake uh, on the small pockets that are still performing within the U.S. economy. So let's have a listen and uh, get back to the discussion on the U.S. economy. I think people in general are looking for a big crescendo. They're wanting this moment that, you know, everything screams, this is the bottom. I think this is an environment where you're not going to get that. And the bottom might take a couple of months to actually, you know, happen. Um, and so second quarter earnings reporting period are going to be increasingly more important. I would tell you that, you know, when I look at the economy and the slowing economy, um, the economy is still working. It's still open. There's still pockets of strength. And I think people forget that um, you have regional you know, pluses and minuses typically in the United States, just given the size of our overall economy, but it's still open and working. It might not be perfect here today. It might not be growing you know, 2% plus. It might be 1%. It might be zero, wherever it might be, but it's still open. And I think that's something to remind ourselves you can watch the entire interview if you are an uh, Essential Plus or Pro subscriber on the Real Vision platform. Um, but back to the points of the uh, interview, Peter, um, are there still pockets of the U.S. economy performing above trend or about trend? Well, to his point, the U.S. economy mostly grows. You need labor force increase and, and productivity, and you're going to get GDP growth but you have cyclical downturns that are called recessions. Just as night follows day, you have recessions that follow expansions. Obviously, expansions run a lot longer, thankfully, than the recessions, but we're still gonna get up and many of us go to work and, and, and live our lives. Obviously, it'll be different somewhat in a recession, but we still sort of chug along and work through it, even though um, it still is painful in that downturn. The question of what works in a recession, well, things work, some things work, but relatively speaking, uh, if I'm Kellogg's and I'm selling snacks and cereals, and for full disclosure, we own it in, in an income strategy that we have, 
uh, yeah, people are still going to eat breakfast and they're going to still eat Pop-Tarts as a snack, but they may eat less or they may trade down and you may go to the supermarket and you may get store brand cornflakes instead of Kellogg's cornflakes. You're still buying a box of cereal, but you're changing your spending behavior. And also, we also have to understand of, of what context is this recession occurring at from a market perspective. It's occurring with valuations that even after this pullback are still very high, are still expecting optimistic earnings growth. And I say optimistic earnings growth because if you look at consensus estimates on, on, on Bloomberg, for example, which is my data feed, people are, the analysts are still expecting about $228 a share in earnings. And I find that sort of in la-la land uh, uh, of an earnings estimate. So we have credit spreads that even though they've widened, junk bond yields have doubled. Historically speaking, going into recession, they're still relatively low in yield and tight in spread. So it's that market backdrop in which this economic slowdown is entering in. Now, if valuations were low, if the S&P 500 was trading at 13 times earnings and credit spreads were much wider, I would say, yeah, we're entering in a recession. That's going to hurt. But markets can may, may be able to absorb that to an extent. Now, we know that, that we do have bear markets coinciding with economic downturns, so that always happens. But it, it's, it's, to me, it's just too nonchalant to say, yeah, well, life goes on and the economy is still going to uh, move on. It's not going to close down, uh, therefore have no problem buying stocks. You know, we know in bull markets, valuations expand, and that's why stocks go up much faster than EPS and GDP growth. Mm. And on the downturn, stocks usually fall more than the economic downturn because multiples fall at the same time, same time earnings fall. So stock prices are just sort of a leveraged view on earnings and the economy. And that's why you get moments in time when stocks grow a lot faster than GDP growth and they fall a lot faster than any decline in GDP growth. We're going to take another quick break and be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. If, if we look at the ISM manufacturing uh, index, I'd say that there is usually a very strong directional correlation to the S&P 500 or NASDAQ, for that matter. Uh, we actually got a, a small regional print out of Dallas um, earlier today uh, showing that the manufacturing sector of Texas um, is, uh, is declining quite rapidly. What do you make of the cyclical manufacturing outlook if you look one, two, three quarters ahead and the repercussions for the equity markets? So going into today's Dallas print, we had a minus sign in front of New York. We had a minus sign in front of Philly. We had a plus sign in front of Kansas City, but had fallen month over month. And the Dallas print was minus 17.7 which is the lowest level, I think, since April or May of 2020, when we were just coming out of 
uh, the sharp shutdown. So we still have to see what the national number is on Friday, the ISM, and we'll get Chicago's uh, regional number on Thursday. But we are seeing likely a contraction in the manufacturing slash good side of the U.S. economy. But, but we know that's where, all the, that's where the excess occurred over the last couple of years, whether it was, was checks to people, it was the stay at home, work from home, let's spend on, on technology and laptops and, 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 and a deck and a Peloton and this and that. We know that's where a lot of spending took place. And now it's hangover time. And that is being felt on the good side. That is seen, being seen, like we said, in the manufacturing numbers. The question then is, what happens with the services side? Since the services side is really the biggest part of, of the U.S. economy, and we're seeing at least a, a burst in travel and entertainment this summer, and we'll see how long that lasts. But uh, I think it's safe to say that that U.S. manufacturing, that the recession has begun. And the Dallas number, like I said, confirming New York and Philly. And uh, now whether we see a minus 50, or I should say below 50 print on Friday, we'll have to see. The market PMI, which came out last week, still was above 50, barely. But you know we're trending and getting close to uh, that under 50 level. If I look at my interest rate based models for the ISM manufacturing number uh, two three quarters ahead, uh, I would basically not be too surprised to see a level below 45 fairly soon and maybe even close to to 40. Uh, we have a question from from Ralph on the real vision side uh, in relation to this discussion um, because um, Ralph is interested in the um, developments within the mortgage-backed security space and whether it's linked to this slowdown in manufacturing. Uh, what do you make of the outlook for, for mortgage-backed securities and the link to the economy? Well, I think the, the uh, first link is is the Fed no longer being a buyer and, and what implications that has for that market. Because uh, we've seen certainly mortgage spreads, uh, MBS spreads relative to treasuries widen out. Uh, also, the worry that at some point, maybe sooner rather than later, that the Fed will actually have to start selling their holdings and mortgage-backed securities in, in order to meet their QT goals. Now, keep in mind, though, these are, you know, an, an agency MBS is still essentially government paper. So it's not like if you were the conventional bondholder, these aren't money good. It's just how they're being priced right now how the, their spread is being priced relative to treasuries, which out without this sort of big gorilla in the market no longer being there, and that's the Fed. So they created so much distortion, and they were buying such a big chunk of that market that uh, that is definitely the huge influence. Now, economically speaking, we know there are a lot less mortgages being issued uh, because of the uh, downturn in housing. We know refis are down 75% year over year. Uh, Mortgage applications for purchases are down 10 plus percent. We know that it is likely to continue to weaken. So, you know, that's the, the direct impact there uh, on MBS. I want to conclude the show uh, with a question that relates to the initial debate we had on uh, the Russian debt default. Uh, Bo asks us uh, whether these sanctions are simply dangerous from a macro point of view, and whether these forced defaults, as we've seen in Russia today, could carry geopolitical repercussions over the next years? 
I, I think that they're dangerous in many ways. Uh, it was dangerous in that while we're trying to punish Russia, the rest of us are getting hurt too by the rise in energy prices, the, the rise in food prices, and, 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 and the pain that, um, that we've had to deal with in response. I mean, Germany is dealing with pain because they're not getting the full flow of natural gas. Now, some of that is self-imposed because they decided to shut down the nuclear plants, but they're, 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 there isn't, it's not costless to just throw sanctions on another country and assume that that country is the only one that gets hurt. We know we've, we've done long-term, long-term damage potentially in, in the flow of funds by sanctioning the Bank of Russia and, and basically cutting off their access to about half of those reserves. What does that mean for the long-term implications of, of, of trade and energy? And whether it's going to be now done in euro, well, in yuan or in other currencies that are not euro-based or, or dollar-based. And what does that mean for the hegemony of the U.S. Uh, of the U.S. And, 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 and the dollar? And, and what happens when, let's just say tomorrow, Putin wakes up and says, what a stupid idea I need to get out of Ukraine. Well, what do we do with these sanctions? Do we automatically take them off? Do they stay on? We don't know. So it, it, it's, it's hard to make sanctions, like I said, laser focused on one uh, enemy and think that's the only one that gets hurt. It's like scattering bombs and some of them will hit the country it's intended for, but there's going to be a lot of collateral damage as well uh, on the rest of us. I, uh, I always want to conclude the daily briefing with a meme that's a trademark of mine as a host. Um, and uh, today's meme relates to the debate on, uh, on sovereign debt. Uh, the final question I have for you, Peter, um, these sanctions imposed on Russia, uh, basically pushing Russia towards China. Um, do you see a risk of the role of the dollar in the global economic uh, ecosystem as a consequence of the sanctions? Well, let's take let's take the second largest holder of U.S. Treasuries, that being China. Mm. You can be sure that when Europe and the U.S. put sanctions on the Bank of Russia, that the Chinese freaked out and said, oh, my God, I have more than a trillion dollars of these things. What happens if we wake up tomorrow and the U.S. does it to us? So you can be sure that China is going to be uh, continuing on the path of reducing their holdings of not just U.S. treasuries, but possibly U.S. assets. And other countries are going to do the same. And that means just wanting to own less U.S. assets that are going to be potentially subject to the whim of the U.S. government if they decide to punish another country. So while the U.S. dollar will still be the main currency in which global transactions take place in, uh, you can be sure when looking out over a long-term time horizon, that percentage Uh, should go down over time. Yeah, it is a bit worrisome. Uh, and when I speak on behalf of the generation of millennials, uh, I can assure you that we uh, are worried about this debt burden being placed on our shoulders over the next many decades. Peter, it was an absolute pleasure to uh, talk to you again this afternoon. Thanks for joining. Thanks, Andreas. Always, uh, always fun to chat the world. Likewise, um, I will be back tomorrow again uh, with another great friend of the show, Tony Greer. Uh, thanks for now and thanks for watching the Real Vision Daily Briefing again. I'm Andreas Dino. See you tomorrow.
What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. For more content like this, head over to realvision.com and get unfiltered access to the very best, brightest, and biggest names in finance. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.